following sermon is from Grace City Church, located in DY, Sydney, Australia. If you'd like to know more about us, head to gracecitychurch.net. Whether that's the first time or the 50th time that you've heard that statement, we need to let that sink in again. Jesus died. In fact, he not only died, he was murdered. Now, why is this a confronting truth? Well, not long before Jesus died, think about some of the things that he was doing. Think about some of the things he was saying. Jesus was calming a storm. He was healing the sick. He was casting out demons. He was walking on water and multiplying food. And more than all of those things, Jesus himself cheated death and brought others back from the dead. And if all of that wasn't enough, think about what Jesus said. He claimed to be none other than God himself. And yet days later, here he was, Jesus died. See, if all of those things were true about Jesus, the reality of him dying should be a concept that we find to be illogical, nonsensical, inconceivable, jarring. Right? If all of those things about Jesus were true, the fact that he died changes everything. You see, one of the reasons why people find the reality of Jesus dying so hard to accept is the evidence of his post-resurrection crucifixion. So his post-crucifixion resurrection. The fact that Jesus was alive post-crucifixion is one of the most historically credible truths there are. There is no doubt that he was alive after he was crucified. And so if you accept that to be true, you almost have to accept that unless Jesus didn't die, he had to have died and rose again, which if Jesus rose from the dead... That's a fairly inconvenient truth that we have to actually deal with the implications of. And so a lot of people try and do away with the fact that Jesus died. A lot of people try and do away with the fact that Jesus was murdered. And one of the most popular theories going around, uh, one of the most popular counterclaims to Jesus actually dying, is something called the swoon theory. The swoon theory. Now, here's how the theory goes. It suggests that when Jesus was taken down from the cross, he wasn't actually dead yet. In fact, he had just swooned. He was unconscious. He had just fainted. And so uh, as, as he was placed inside the tomb, he spent those three days essentially recovering. And then he came out of the tomb. He had been alive the whole time, but he had been rehabilitated enough to the point that his friends and his disciples believed that he was completely healed again. Now, there are a number of problems with that theory, but let me just tell you one. Think about it this way, right? The, the video already alluded to this, but the primary cause of, of death through crucifixion was not actually blood loss. It was asphyxiation. Right? The primary cause of death through resurrection wasn't actually blood loss, but it was actually an inability to breathe as your body hung there vertically. And so what people would do as they were hanging on the cross to try and prolong their life was they would push themselves up through the nails in order to kind of catch another wind of breath. So uh, crucifixion could actually be a very long and drawn-out process as they push themselves up, catch more breath, and they kind of go again, right? But if the soldiers wanted to accelerate the process of death, they had two ways of doing it. Number one, they would break the legs of those who were on the cross, which would prevent them from kind of doing this. Right? And secondly, if that wasn't enough, uh, after they had passed away, they would put a spear through their side to make sure they were well and truly dead. And so if you think that he was somehow still unconscious and not quite dead, you have to come to the conclusion that maybe the Romans weren't very good at what they did. But that's a historically non-credible fact. The Romans were, in fact, very, very notorious for the fact they were very good at crucifying people. So Jesus died. He died. There is no doubt about it. He was physically 100% dead. In fact, I would say that it would take more faith to believe that he didn't die than to accept the fact that he did. 
Jesus died. He was murdered. But the second truth I want us to reflect on tonight is not only that Jesus died, but that he was alone through it all. He was alone. Because although the physical nature of what Jesus went through is uh, excruciating and not to be downplayed or minimized, as you read the Gospel of Mark, that book that Robin read for, for us from, it's almost as if Mark spares us a lot of the details of his physical ordeal. Almost as if to think that maybe Mark was trying to point us away from the physical nature of Jesus' sufferings and getting us to focus instead on what was laying behind those physical experiences. What, was, what, what were the non-physical aspects of what Jesus went through on Good Friday? And as you read through the story in the Gospel of Mark, you cannot escape this deep and abiding sense of loneliness that permeated every interaction that Jesus went through. You read about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, fell asleep on him in his greatest hour of need. Moments later, you read about one of his disciples, Judas, selling him out for money, outright betraying his master with an ironic kiss. After that, Jesus was arrested, and it says that all of the disciples scattered, deserting him at the first real test of their fortitude. And then fast forward a few more hours, and as Peter was spotted in the crowd by some, some of the mob, they questioned him, hey, don't, weren't, weren't you one of Jesus' crew? Weren't you one of his disciples? Weren't you one of his friends? And Jesus openly denied on three occasions any association with Jesus, choosing to save his own skin and protect his own reputation rather than to be counted as an associate of Jesus. Jesus was abandoned. And if all of that was still not enough, look with me to Mark chapter 15, verse 33, if you've got your Bibles open. If you don't, that's okay. Verse 33 says, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, on the cross, the pinnacle of Jesus' suffering wasn't the crown of thorns being pressed into his skull or even the emotional pain of being abandoned by his friends. It was the deep spiritual pain of being forsaken by God the Father. Notice that he doesn't say, Oh God, oh God, why have you forsaken me? He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the language of intimacy, right? That personal pronoun, my. It's the language of affection and endearment. See, biblically, the phrase, my God, was the, way that God would, uh, was the way that God could say that you could address him if you had a personal relationship with him. If you didn't have a personal relationship, you weren't allowed to call him my God. It's a term of intimacy and affection. You see, think about it this way. If, if after tonight, one of you were to come up to me and say, you did a terrible job, I never want to see you or talk to you again, I would feel pretty bad. Okay, I'm not going to be. I'm not. I'm, I'm going to be completely honest with you. But if after I went home, uh, my wife and my son, if you could talk, would have said to me, "I never want to see you or talk to you again," that would hurt me a whole lot more. Right? The deeper the love, the closer the relationship, the greater the torment of its loss. And in the case of Good Friday, the loss was between God the Father and God the Son, who had loved each other from all eternity. This love was infinitely long, absolutely perfect, and Jesus was being cut out of it. Jesus was being forsaken to the point where when we read about his final moments, the soldiers were saying, now leave him alone. No one else around. It was just him on a cross dying alone. 
And his body then was taken off that cross and placed inside a tomb where his lifeless body lay alone for three days. You see, for many of us, what Jesus endured on that Friday, even taking aside all the physical aspects of his suffering, encapsulates our deepest fears. To be alone, to die alone, to be completely forgotten, abandoned by those who we thought were our friends. This is what Jesus experienced on that day. Jesus was alone. But the third and final aspect of Jesus' Good Friday ordeal that I want to point you to tonight is the fact that he was punished. He was punished. Because as you take a step back and consider everything that he went through, even from a completely non-religious, objective point of view, you cannot say that it's just because he went through a bad day or that he was dealt a bad hand. No, as you look at what he went through, it, it, it appears to be the nature of punishment. Right, the cumulative effect of all that he experienced is much more like someone who was being punished for something that they did wrong. Think about how he was mocked right, by the soldiers, by the mob, right, by the crowd. Think about the way that he was scourged in the public square as he was tied to that post, skin ripped off his back with a cat of nine tails. Think about the way that he was carrying that cross through the city streets of Jerusalem as he was spat on, not to mention the way that he was executed, right? The, the, the specific way by which he died, crucifixion, was designed, specially designed to humiliate the offender and appall the observer. It was reserved by the Romans for the most uh, notorious of criminals, those who were convicted of murder or of rebellion or of armed robbery. Right? This was a tailor-made form of punishment for the worst of the worst. In other words, Jesus was not like any other religious martyr. A lot of other religions have martyrs that they would mourn and celebrate but Jesus wasn't just a martyr who was killed for his beliefs. Jesus was punished as a criminal. He was punished as a criminal. But here's the plot twist. That even though he was punished as a criminal, he himself did no wrong. He was a scapegoat. He suffered punishment not for his own wrongdoing, but for the wrongdoing of others. Which begs the question, who was the deserving culprit? And what was the crime? See, to answer that question, you've got to rewind a little bit. Back to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's there all alone. He's praying to his father, drips of blood coming from his head. And he's praying to the father in anguish. And he says to, to God the Father, take this cup away from me. He says, take this cup away from me. What is that cup? Whatever the cup is, that's the thing that he's most afraid of. He doesn't say to the father, take the whips away from me. Take the shame away from me. Take the loneliness away from me. He says, no, take the cup away from me. What is the cup? What was the thing that Jesus feared the most? See, what the cup symbolized, as you look at the Old Testament, it was a very specific metaphor that was used to represent not the physical pain or the mental distress, but the spiritual torment that came with bearing the punishment of God's wrath. Right? The cup was a metaphor to represent the sins of the world. And to drink the cup is to undergo the punishment that those sins deserved. But that's what the cup represented, that, that Jesus was being, was being presented with a cup uh, which contained the sins of the world. All of the cumulative rebellion of all of humanity, from eternity past to eternity future, Jesus was the one being asked to drink that cup. Jesus was, was the one who was asked to endure that punishment. See, it was a full cup, right? The sins of everyone who had ever existed and whoever will exist. And it was a heavy cup, a cup that represented not just wrongdoing against an average person down the street, but wrongdoing against the one who was the creator of the universe. A full cup, a heavy cup representing the wrath of God. 
Because all of this begs the question, how could a day on which the wrath of God is on full display still be considered Good Friday? See, many of us get quite uncomfortable with this notion of the wrath of God because it's not the God that we want. We don't want a wrathful God. We don't want an angry God. We want a God of love. But the problem with that dichotomy is that it's a false one. You see, if you want a loving God, you've got to have an angry God. Loving people do get angry, not in spite of their love, but because of it. Right? In fact, the closer and deeper your love is for another, the angrier you could potentially come if the person you love is being harmed or hurt in some way. And if you were not to respond in anger when, your pers- when the person who you love is being harmed, it doesn't mean that you are somehow more loving or more gracious or more accepting. It probably means that you don't actually care about them at all. You see, if you have a loving God, you've got to have a wrathful God. If you have a loving God, you've got to have an angry God as well. See, the Bible tells us that God loves everything that he made. He loves the world. He loves the planet. He loves the creation. But most of all, he loves us. He loves us. He made us in his image. And that's one of the reasons why he is angry at what is going on in his world. He's angry that we have destroyed ourselves. He's angry that we live in such a way that is not pleasing to him. He's angry because we have not cared for his world in the way that he has told us to. And so ultimately, that's why we call today Good Friday. Because although on initial impressions it seems like it's a day of God's wrath, his wrath actually points to an even deeper characteristic of his nature, which is his love. His love for us. His love for us that is too deep for him to just sit back and do nothing. His love that is so deep that he is willing, in fact, to step in and deal with the sin that so infects everything about our existence. You see, we are both culprits of sin and victims of it. Jesus, by dying for us on the cross and drinking that cup of God's wrath, deals with all the consequences of sin now and forever so that we might walk free. You know, if you come on Easter Sunday, we'll be able to step through some of what that post-resurrection life looks like, that freedom we get to experience in Christ. But for now, on Good Friday, we're just going to sit in that space of thankfulness for his love And to do that, I actually want to lead us through the Lord's Supper. See, today of all days in the Christian calendar is probably the most important opportunity for us as believers, as Christians, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I use that word celebrate very deliberately. It is a celebration because it's now we've been reminded of, right, today is a day of grieving. Yes, it is. It's a day that we grieve the loss of our our, our Savior and our God. But it's also a day of celebration, an opportunity for us to celebrate the fact that because the wrath of God has been poured out on Christ, the love of God has now been poured out on us. Because the wrath of God has been poured out on Christ, the love of God is now poured out on us by His Spirit. Another way of saying it is this, that as we take the Lord's Supper, this um, institution that Christ left behind for us, uh, it is both backward-looking as well as forward-looking. It's both backward-looking as well as forward-looking. Firstly, it's backward-looking. Jesus specifically told us, as you take the bread and drink the wine, that we will do it in remembrance of what he did. We're looking backwards. We're looking back to the fact that Jesus was murdered. We're looking back to the fact that Jesus was alone. We're looking back to the fact that Jesus is punished. It's backward-looking. So I pray that you would uh, look backwards as you partake in the Lord's Supper tonight. But the Lord's Supper is also forward-looking. It's forward-looking in the sense that Jesus said to his disciples, he said, I tell you, from this moment I will not drink of this fruit of the vine 
until that day when I drink it in a new way in my Father's kingdom with you. He gave us this tangible, sensory experience, not just so that we would look back in what He did for us on the cross, but in fact that we would look forward with excitement and anticipation to when we won't just be drinking from these tiny little cups, right? The Bible says that all of us will be seated around the table, banqueting and feasting together, celebrating Jesus and all that He did for us. There's a great feast and a great celebration that is coming. It's not here yet. This is just a tiny little shot glass volume worth of it. Right? Jesus says, now look forward to that even greater day, that greater celebration when all of sin's curse will be finally lifted and we'll get to celebrate for all eternity around God's table with God's people, with God at the head of the table. Right? So let's, let's partake in this tonight and look backwards, look back to Good Friday, but also look forwards, look forward to that great day that wedding supper of the Lamb. So I'm going to ask the helpers to come forward. Uh, they're going to help us to distribute the elements. Uh, this is a very specific, uh, I guess, practice or ceremony that Jesus uh, commanded uh, his people uh, to experience. So if you're not a Christian here today, thanks for coming, thanks for being here. Uh, this is actually specifically for those who would identify as God's people, as, as the people of God as Christians. If you're not a Christian, just let the bread and the juice pass by. Maybe this is a time for you to reflect on some of the things you've heard today. Uh, but as the helpers pass the bread and the juice around, I'm just going to ask that you would hold the elements in your hand, uh, and we're going to take uh, this communion together tonight. <laughs>